Nehemiah. We've looked at what what it uh, the, what our focus in opportunities should be. Um, we've looked at uh, the obstacles that remain or that are present in the middle of opportunities. Um, so this morning, I want us to look at the anatomy of an opportunity. Remember, this whole series is based around this concept of ministry opportunities that are presented to us as believers um, and how we need to really make the most of each opportunity that's been given. The, the opportunities that I'm speaking of are not the opportunities necessarily of personal advancement, but rather kingdom advancement, uh, using those moments that God has provided for us to impact and engage someone else for the cause of Christ. Nehemiah is a tremendous book. In fact, if you look in, uh, you're digging deeper through the week questions on the back of your bulletin, uh, one of the things I've given you is something you can take home with you is, is an opportunity to be able to read through the book of Nehemiah. It's really not long um, to read through the book of Nehemiah this week if you are looking for something uh, to study and to read, and there's a, there's a little assignment in there you can uh, take advantage of. And that's, again, that's in the digging deeper through the week section of your bulletin. But where Nehemiah falls is about 450 years roughly before Christ. That's what has taken place. God's people had been in bondage to the Babylonians, and there had been really two, uh, two returns from captivity uh, of the Persians back to their home country, back to their own land. One of those took place in, four, in uh, 538. The second one took place in 458. And now ne- Nehemiah is really going to lead a third, smaller uh, exodus, if you will, back to their land. Uh, he's going to bring them back out of captivity. Now, Nehemiah uh, was a butler to King Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And when I say a butler, you may think, you may conjure up these images of, you know, the, the tucks and, and all of that with the tails and, and very royal. And no doubt, um, being any type of a servant to a king is definitely puts you in a, in a remarkable place. I mean, you're going to be in a palace. Um, you're going to be able to experience some of the finer things of life. But I want you to consider for a moment that when it says that Nehemiah was a butler or a cupbearer, that doesn't really have all of the glam that we would think it would. Because his job was to literally eat some of the food and drink some of the drink that was given to Artaxerxes. Because, see, Artaxerxes is the king of Persia. As any ruler, there was a threat that they could be poisoned and killed by their enemies. So Nehemiah's one of his jobs and responsibilities was to eat some of the food that was presented to Artaxerxes and to drink some of his drink to ensure that he didn't die. So later on in the story, when you see the king Artaxerxes turns to him and says, what's wrong, Nehemiah? I know you're not sick. I mean, that has a little more meaning to it, knowing that had Nehemiah fallen down dead, Artaxerxes would have known not to eat that food or to drink that drink. So he had a great job in that it took him to a, uh, he worked for a king, he was in royalty, he was in palace. A lot of times, um, those guys were um, even references for the kings. They would be sometimes even their cabinet or offer counsel. So this was definitely a very well-respected position. This was a, a pretty nice job when you consider that the rest of his uh, people, the Israelites, had just spent this time in bondage and a lot less nice surroundings. Um, and then they go back to 
Israel and they go back to Jerusalem. And I want you to see what happens. Remember, there have already been two returns from Persia back to Jerusalem, back to their land. And it says that something happens in the very opening part of the book of Nehemiah. It tells us that some of Nehemiah's brothers, now either they were literal brothers or they were just uh, of his people. They come into the palace for some reason and Nehemiah sees them. In verse uh, 2, says that my, they came from Judah and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Let me stop that for just a minute. It seems as though this, this happening of these men comes, Nehemiah just asks a question. Hey, how are my brothers back in Jerusalem? How are the rest of those who were in captivity and survived captivity and made it back to Jerusalem, how are they doing? That is a question. That, that's, that's a statement that we probably would ask many times in our life. It's the same type of question if you call back home on Sunday to talk to your mother or your father. It's the same type of question when you're asking, when you're talking to a friend from your hometown, and you say questions like, like hey, how are so-and-so? What's going on in, in, in the hometown? You know, what's going on? Did the building get up? Did blah, blah, blah. You want to know what's going on. Now, guys, let me tell you something. Those guys that, uh, that Nehemiah asked, how is thing? they don't bring a good report. They tell them that the people that left captivity have come back and they are greatly distressed. They are in reproach, meaning they are literally living in shame. And the walls around Jerusalem, its protection, are destroyed and its gates have been burned with fire. Now for us today, that may not mean as much. But really what those guys are saying is they're coming back and they're telling Nehemiah, you know what, we left captivity... We left this horrible hand of the Babylonians. We left that horrible experience, and we've come back to Jerusalem. We've come back to Zion, the Holy of Holies. We have come back to the very Mount City of God. And we are ashamed. We are endangered because the fortified walls around Jerusalem are torn down. Our enemies are mocking us. They're making fun of us. We have no defense. We are vulnerable. We're ashamed. So when these men are telling Nehemiah this, remember, he just asked the question, how is everybody? And they throw this out at him. The very next verse says, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. If we're looking at the anatomy of an opportunity, there are really three doors. Please get this this morning. If we're looking at the anatomy of an opportunity, there are three doors that open. The first door that opens here is the door of conversation. The door of conversation, that is the door to your mouth or to your ears. Guys, this is a huge, huge moment. In Israel's history. This undertaking that Nehemiah does. To leave, uh, his, his, the, leave the palace. And to go be a bricklayer for God. 
his task to go ahead and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem is a huge task. In fact, it's completed in 52 days. A feat that even the enemies of God have to realize was done by God. But this huge event, this huge task, this huge undertaking to go back and fortify the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, to go back and to to remove the shame of God's people, to go back and, and provide protection for them. Do you realize that that happened all because one guy asked one question? This whole book of Nehemiah, all of the praise that came from those walls being rebuilt, all of the glory that went to God over this task being finalized, all was birthed because one man asked one question. Because one man was not afraid to start a conversation. You see, if you think about it, A lot of times our conversation sometimes can be pretty hollow. Hey, how you doing? I'm okay. And don't get me wrong, I understand that those are the gentle pleasantries of the English language. That's our culture. We ask, how are you doing? And we really don't necessarily mean it because if somebody really thinks we mean it and they start telling us how they are, how quick do we want to get out of that conversation? If we start rolling our eyes or we think, okay, this was just, again, the gentle pleasantry of the English conversation. I didn't really mean, how are you doing? I, I really didn't want to know all of the details. Guys, let me tell you something. Our culture, our, our town, our state, our nation right now, I believe is hurting in ways that they haven't really hurt before. There is a huge population of people that on the outside, everything seems fine, but on the inside, they're being torn apart. Their families are breaking, their finances are hurting, their future's unstable, their children, their home is a wreck and a mess. And on the outside, on their Facebook status, everything is fine. But once you start getting inside, they're hurting and they're falling apart and they need someone who really cares. You see, the crazy thing about why we don't get involved is because information leads to obligations. If I really ask and I really want to know, then what am I going to do with that that I know? Once I realize something's going on, I then have some bit of an obligation to do something about the knowledge that I have now. And that's why we have kind of used this as a, as a social condiment. That you say, oh, how are you doing in passing? And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't continue that. But don't be afraid to open up a true dialogue. Don't be afraid to genuinely mean to look at somebody and engage them and ask them a question with a heart that really wants to know, to say genuinely, how are things? There are two people in my life that when they ask me how I'm doing and I say fine, do you know what their next response is? How are you really doing? Two men in my life. I guarantee you right now, if I walked up to those two men and said, and they said, how are you doing? I said, fine. They would say, how are you really doing? Guys, that's what we really need in our society. They're, they're dying for someone to hear. They're dying for someone to talk to. They're dying for answers. They are literally dying for answers. They were, he was confronted with information that was not popular. It wasn't nice. It wasn't good. But he initiated it. 
the door of conversation, the door to his mouth and to his ears was open. First step of the opportunity. I have heard that there is a need. By the way, let me tell you something. You hear a lot of times us as pastors saying that we need to improve our prayer life. You always hear us talking about about all the books that are written on ways that we can improve our prayer life as believers. But let me remind you of something. It says in those verses that he sat down and he wept and he fasted and he prayed for many days. But the reason he wept and he fasted and he prayed was because he cared enough to ask. Remember this little tidbit, this little one-liner, please. Care often exists before prayer. Maybe it's not so much that our prayer life needs to be improved as much as our care life needs to improve. I'm going to pray about the things that I care about. I'm going to pray with a fervency if there's something affecting me or my family. Someone has once said that minor surgery is surgery that happens to somebody else. Right? That's somebody else's surgery. If it's me, it's not minor surgery. It's major surgery. Why? Because I care about me. I, I care about me maybe to an extent more than I would care about other people. Care often exists before prayer. Notice the second thing. First was the door of conversation. He asked, he cared, he heard this. Now he has this information. What does he do with it? The second door that opened beyond his ears was now the door of his heart. It went from the door of conversation now to the door of compassion. Nehemiah finds himself in a great place. I mean, these next few verses, verse 4 on down through the first chapter, Nehemiah finds himself with some of the great men of God. Nehemiah finds himself literally looking like Jeremiah the prophet. He finds himself literally looking like Moses, praying and confessing and standing in the gap for God's people. He literally finds himself looking like Abraham, beseeching God that he would not destroy Sodom until Lot was out of there, sparing Lot's life. He finds himself looking like Jesus Christ who in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, and chapter 14, verse 14, the Bible says when he came out and saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion on them and healed their sick, for they were as sheep, not having a shepherd. All of these men were moved and gripped by the reality and the compassion of what was going on. Remember this. You want to experience compassion in your life? You want to know what compassion means? And yes, I would love to tell you that it just means that you are feeling something with somebody else. But in all of the moments that I find in the Bible that I can think of where someone demonstrated compassion, you know what that what all of those events had in common? Somebody was moved because someone else didn't have something. They were moved because someone else was lacking something. Please hear this. Please. The desire to do something is rooted in God. Because from the very beginning, He was and is the rescuer. You all have been there. You've seen those puppies tied up in the cages for those two-minute commercials, right? 
that always come around Easter and Christmas time. Don't get me wrong. You spend your money however you want to spend it. You give, you volunteer, how, whatever way you want to volunteer and spend your money. But to me, the greatest need in the world right now is a lost humanity. Not just, don't get me wrong, again, I love animals. I hate to see any animal suffer. But if I am prioritizing my resources, the greatest way I can do something is to share Jesus Christ or to support those ministries that lead other people to salvation through Jesus Christ alone. That, that's the greatest. Think about it. Think about this for just a moment. There is no greater danger than sin. None. There is no greater consequence than eternity. There is no greater good than salvation. And there's no greater need than Jesus Christ in all of the world. You can support and you can do good for things that really, in the whole scheme of things, don't matter as much as one eternal soul. If we are going to do good, we really need to be able to do good for the thing that is the most good, the greatest good, and that is the salvation of lost souls. Doing good is rooted in God. Doing good is rooted in God because from the very beginning, He was our rescuer. Think about this for just a moment. If doing good is rooted in God... That also means then the more I am rooted in God, the more I want to do good, right? Yeah. Nehemiah, here's this message. My people, the walls are torn down. What's going on? So what does he do? He immediately turns around. In verse 5, I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, Please let your ear be attentive to your servant, which I pray before you now night and day for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. Nehemiah immediately goes to God. He begins to pray and confess sin. He begins to seek God on behalf of the people. He realizes the problem was not that God had turned away from his people, but that his people I turned away from God. I want you to see something in chapter 2. Chapter 2, Nehemiah goes before King Artaxerxes. But before he does, look at the verse preceding chapter 2. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cup bearer. He goes in front of Artaxerxes. It says, It came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that when wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you were not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart, so I became dreadfully afraid. And said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste? 
and its gates are burned with fire. Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. First was the door to his ears. The door of communication. Secondly was the door of compassion. The third was the door of his life. Third was the door of his life or the door of consecration. Guys, four months had passed. Four months from the time he first heard those words that our people are shamed. The walls are torn down. We're in danger. You see, we might initially think that he heard that and he just turned right around and ran to the king and said, King, I'm ready to go. He didn't. Four months, guys. It actually took like twice as long for him to actually do it than the whole project took in in the first place. You know what I think happened? I think those four months, Nehemiah was waiting for the right time. But I believe that during those four months, something happened. I believe a burden continued to grow. You ever been there before? You ever had a burden to do something? You were presented with an opportunity. Maybe a ministry, maybe a need, maybe a co-worker, maybe a burden about a sin that you were struggling with in your own life, maybe a burden over a fractured relationship and you were trying to brush it off, trying to forget about it, trying to move something else into the forefront so that wasn't there, but it didn't go away. Continue to stay right there and only get heavier and heavier heavier many men and women have been called into the service of the Lord many men and women have found themselves in various places throughout this world because they were unable to shake that burden and it only grew more and more and more each month their shoulder would dip a little more each month they found it more difficult I believe what we see here is Nehemiah buckling under the weight, the burden of his people, much like Moses. A Hebrew who was raised as an Egyptian, who realized he was not an Egyptian, he was a Hebrew. And under the burden of weight, seeing an, uh, seeing an Israelite being beaten as a slave, he chose then at that point to no longer be considered an Egyptian. The burden had become too great. He was all in. He was all in. Some of you may remember the prophet Isaiah. Who had one of the great callings, I think, in all of the Bible. He goes into the temple and he sees this vision of the Lord high and lifted up. It says that the veil of, of his of his garment filled the whole temple. And as he was in there, there were cherubim and seraphim and They were flying around and they had this antiphonal choir singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah was saying that that vision was that that, that what was going on and what was being said was actually causing the pillars to shake. 
And no doubt, Isaiah, seeing this glorious image of God and, and seeing these celestial beings flying and praising God, it was just so much on his senses that he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. What Nehemiah or what, what Isaiah just realized was that God is holy, I am not, and he begins confessing his sin. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. And then do you remember what happens? One of the seraphim comes down and places coals of fire on his lips. So literally at that moment he is sanctified. His sin has been dealt with. He has been confessing that sin before God. And God deals with that sin in his life. And then do you remember the great words of God? God says this, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Do you remember that? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Just a very few words strung together by God. But remember, it was after this tremendous account that Isaiah had of this amazing God. So all Isaiah hears is, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And what does Isaiah say? If you know it, say it. Here am I, send me, right? What did Isaiah know? Did he know what he was going to do? Did he know what he was going to say? No. He didn't know where he was going, what he was going to do, or for how long he was going to do it. All he knew was who he was going for. That was it. All God said was, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Nehemiah, seeing what he saw, thought, well, if all it is, if, if, if what God is asking is for someone to be an ambassador for God, I'm in. Here am I, send me. Making himself available. And it was only after Isaiah said, here I am, send me, that God then said, okay, here's what I want you to do. Here's the thought, church. Here's the thought, Jamie. God often doesn't give us the instructions until we've given him our hearts. We don't always know the specifics of what God wants us to do until we've given ourselves to him. That's why this third part is so important. The first part was he had to hear it. He initiated the conversation. He cared enough to ask. Once he heard that information, it broke him. The, the, the door of his ears then opened to the door of his heart and he was moved with compassion. And what happened? Then the door of his life opened. This was much too great for him to not go through that door of opportunity that God gave him. For the record, he sought King Artaxerxes for permission, for protection, for passage, and for provision. He sought a Babylonian king for all of the necessary elements to get those walls built. And the king signed off on it. Friends, if God's heart beats for the redemption of lost man, how much greater do you think we have with an audience of God to provide us permission, passage, provision, and protection. To do what? To win 
the lost to Him. Friends, it's not a question of does God want to win the lost. The question is, are we a part of it? Let me end with this. Nehemiah was a hero. There's no other way to look at it. He was an absolute hero. And as I was preparing this message, actually I'd been preparing it through the week, and I was actually out in my garden. I was hoeing my potatoes. And I was thinking about this message, and I was thinking about what a hero Nehemiah was, and I asked myself the question, where are the heroes today? I'm not saying that there aren't any. I'm just saying, where are the heroes today? And then I asked myself, Jamie, who has been a hero in your life? Have you had any heroes? Have you ever had any men or women who knew, who had the door of of conversation open, and then the door of compassion, and then the door of consecration in their life? It it moved, and, and they were impactful for you. And let me tell you about one hero really quick. There was a family that knew my life was jacked up, guys. Young teenager. Jacked up life. Young teenager. I didn't really have much going on for me at that point. This family knew there was trouble in my home. This family got on the phone and called my mom and said, we want Jamie to come and stay the weekend with us. We know things are difficult right now. Could he come and stay the weekend with us? My mom said, sure. I went and stayed the weekend with that wonderful, godly Christian family who demonstrated to me what it was to be a family that loved Jesus, to provide for that weekend some stability in a very unstable life. That family was instrumental in me coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That family was a hero to me. They heard there was a need. Their heart was broken, and they opened up the door of their home so I could come, so I could eat with them, so I could be a part of their family devotion, so I could laugh with them, so I could sit with them at church, so I could hear the gospel, so I could be saved. There are two kinds of people in this story. Those that need a hero and those that are a hero. God delights in rebuilding the walls that the enemy has torn down. Today, which one of those are you? Are you a hero to your family? Are you a hero to your community? Are you hearing the needs? Responding to the needs? Committing to the needs? All for the cause of Jesus Christ and for his glory.